Have you ever felt like you came up short? Someone's like, yeah, this morning. Like I, yeah, like daily. I don't know. Like what, how many, how, how much time do we have? Um, but really, like when's the last time you felt like you came up short? I think about as I was looking back on this week, there's a lot of times. Um, for some reason, I was reminded of getting cut from baseball in like seventh grade. Like that was one of them. Like that's some small thing in the moment though. It's like everything, right? Like you somehow, because you don't make the team, then you question your worth and am I good enough and all your friends are still making the team and you know, all those different things. Um, and that's a lighter one though. It was very real in the moment. Uh, maybe it's expectations. Like you feel like some people have had certain expectations for you in your life and you feel like you just have fallen short of those expectations or maybe someone has used the word with you, you know, I'm not mad, but I'm disappointed. A very shaming statement, by the way. Um, I don't know what it is, but like, when's the last time you felt like you came up short? Is it work? Maybe it's work. The promotion that passed you, the recognition that you wish you would have received. Maybe it's just the continual thing of just doing, I hate doing this, but I'm just stuck. And you just feel constantly like you were just falling short. Well, as we continue this morning in um, this sermon series, what can oftentimes happen is that when we feel like we come up short, I know that's immediate like bad news. When I, when I come up short in anything, I don't look at it right away and be like, oh, you know what, this is actually going to end up being really good. It doesn't matter that much. Everything's good. God's going to do it. Whatever. Like, usually it's like, no, I, I got to stay in this place of feeling bad, of feeling like I'm not enough, of feeling like I did not measure up. But we're in a series called The Pursuit. We're looking at a number of stories that Luke, uh, an early first century physician, captures this narrative around Jesus. And he writes in this way that it continues to show like God breaking into people's lives over and over and again. And oftentimes it's people that are ordinary, everyday people. And most often it's people that are least expected. Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I would think like God's breaking into people's lives because they never fall short. Like they're, they're always doing the right thing. So God must be with them and, and he's coming alongside them and they're, they're seeing this thing move because they're closer to God or whatever it is. And those that are falling short over and over again, God must not be with them. At least that's, I think, the imagery that culture tends to paint around God and relationship with us. But as we look at these stories that Luke draws out of who Jesus is, we continue to see him breaking into people's lives. And the, what, the question I'm proposing us to ask is, is God breaking into my life today? I can read a lot of these stories and see what God is up to in and through Jesus, but is that actually reality? Am I actually experiencing that now, or was that just something for a couple thousand years ago? And I think he speaks to this idea of coming up short very clearly and what we can do with it. So continuing in our series, Luke 14, 25 to 27, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Good Mother's Day, like pep talk, huh? Like that's a fun one. Wait, hold on. So there's this large crowd of people and they're following Jesus. He's doing these great things. He's doing these miracles. He has uh, this crazy wisdom when he teaches. People are listening to him and these crowds just start following him. And I could imagine every, if you asked each person in that crowd why they were there, they would probably tell you something different. They would probably tell you why they like Jesus, who he is, what, what he means to them. And through all of them, you might be able to piece together who J Jesus actually is. That means you'd have to get all of them in a room talking and doing that. You can't do that. 
So they're all following, and then all of a sudden, when they think they're following the one that is who they think he is and what he means to them and what he's going to do for them, he turns to them and says this. And I think it's very interesting that he goes into, like, family. And if we think about a couple thousand, you know, in the early first century, a couple thousand years ago, everything was very patriarchal. So really, who you were, what you did, who you married, all of those things was tied to your family line. You were essentially defined by your family, the family that you were born into, and how that worked out culturally. So he, he actually takes what we can call an idol. So, so if we think about idols, we, we can think about the things that can be good, that, that are meant to be good, but then we make them everything. We take good things and we make them ultimate. And Jesus takes what could be considered an idol. When I actually make everything about my family mean everything to me, when my, my family defines what I do for work, when my family defines who I marry, when my family defines what is shaming and honorable, we see, I think, more and more of this in American culture. We, we tend to be a little bit more of a guilt-driven culture, but there's many cultures outside of the West that would be shame-honor cultures. And to, to look good in the eyes of your family is literally everything. And you will do everything possible to not shame your family. So even your actions are larger than just yourself. It's not to receive shame myself. It's actually because that shame then represents my family. And Jesus takes one of them, one of these idols of family and tribe, and he says that you need to hate your mother and your father, your brothers and your sisters, if you want to be my disciple. If we take this word hate, I don't want to downplay it, but really what we're talking about is prioritizing. So I don't think Jesus is taking and saying you need to dismiss everything that your family is and you need to like come against them and you need to curse them and you, you, don't, like, you don't need to actually act in hate, but can you prioritize me over your family? And then he does a second one and he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And I think he takes another idol. So if we think about family and tribe, and then we think about the idol of self. This would be more of an individual, individualistic way of living, which I think is much more tied to our culture here in the West. That, that everything I put weight to is myself. That everything that I'm measuring in life and how I'm doing and where I'm going is I look inward and ask myself, am I doing what I want to be doing? Am I being who I want to be? And am, I, am I pleasing the things that I feel that I need to please in my life? And I keep looking inward and inward and inward. And he says that actually, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross. You need to die to yourself. And so Jesus very quickly turns to this massive group of people and takes the two things that they probably hold above all else and says, you need to make me greater. How hard is that? Like daily, over and over and over. Like if you think about just your own family right now, and you think about the ways in which you were raised and the hopes and dreams your parents had for you and the expectations for things. And some are probably more of like, man, when, when are you going to start doing this? When are you going to live up to this? When are you going to start having kids? When are you going to get married? When are you going to move out? Like, I just keep going, right? And there could be a, a sense to either live into that and you measure everything by that, or there's probably another sense to resist because, well, I'm an individual and I am myself and I don't need my family and I determine, you know, and you just keep going on and on and on. 
But then on the individualistic side, we see a culture tending to be more um, just fluid in who they are and how they operate. We can pick up and we can move and we're not attached to family. And we move more and more into urban centers because we actually find more people there. You ever notice that one? Like the person that moves away from family, it's not they go to like the middle of Arkansas, but they go to like New York City, right? Because I think we still need people. But we start to identify more and more the family and then the things within us. And in this culture and time of being authentic and authenticity is I'm going to be true to who I am from the inside. And Jesus also says, no. You actually, if you want to follow me, can you carry your cross? So he points out really, he gives this juxtaposition. He takes the family and tribe and he positions it against what? Being a Okay? And, then, and then he takes yourself, who you are, the things that you desire and want and think that are good for life and your passions and all that, and he takes that and he juxtaposes it against what? Being a disciple. So it seems to be that he is calling people to be a disciple. Now, we don't use that word very much. We don't see like parent and their kids walking around away and be like, oh yeah, that's their parents and there's their little disciples following them. Or we don't like walk into a restaurant and see like the owner and then all the restaurant staff being like, oh yeah, thank you, disciple. Like you just, we don't use this language. Probably the closest to it for us would be an apprentice, right? Oftentimes in any type of trade, but especially like an electrician, you have people becoming an apprentice. And what it means is to learn and you have a teacher and someone that's teaching you. So what we see here is early on, if we look at the model of discipleship that Jesus is adopting here, so when he says the word disciple, Kelly, we can go to that next slide, we see a few things. He actually takes on an early rabbinic model. So rabbis would have this as a teacher with their students. And really there was three phases in which they were looking to do is to be with their rabbi, to become like their rabbi, and to do as their rabbi. So I, I want to interact a little bit real quick. But like if we were to think about, if Jesus is calling us to actually pull away from, to prioritize him over what we could idolize as family and tribe, or to put over ourself, our individual being, and how we can tend to idolize ourselves and, and the world around us needs to adapt to me, if he's calling us to, to actually put him above that, I'd be curious what these look like. So, so if we start here, what does it mean to be with Jesus? So if we take that early 2,000 years ago and we think about them being with Jesus and then how that works out today, what are some ways in which we can be with Jesus? Go ahead. Let's say some out loud. Good. Yeah. So the intimate prayer life with Jesus. Giving up positions of privilege. Yeah, we're actually pulling away from something that probably looks good or helps us or is meaningful to us and we're actually following something that's pulling us away from that. What else? I mean, inconvenience. It's good. What else? What does it mean to be with Jesus? It's probably like a thousand, by the way, so don't feel like you're going to have a wrong answer. What's it mean? What's it look like? Speaking from your experience, Painful? There can be pain, it can be painful to be with Jesus. What else? Yeah, being vulnerable, not holding things back. What are some of the, like, the physical, like, how, how would we know if someone was being with Jesus? How would I know myself if I was being with Jesus? What am I doing? 
solitude. What else? It's interesting how we can actually be with certain people, and in that, we're actually with Jesus. Yeah. Good. Let's keep going. What's it then look like to become like? What, 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 is that, what does that even mean? What does that look like? To mourn with those and mourn, to rejoice with those, to rejoice. I, I start to carry that kind of posture. More. How do I start to know if I'm becoming like Jesus? My priorities start to shift a bit. I start caring differently for different things. What else? Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, or the lens in which we actually see people changes. Yeah, yeah. Speaking, interacting with others starts to look different. Maybe one or two more? Good, yeah. Interacting with nature and creation, things that God has created. Good, slow to anger, quick to love. Yeah. So then, if that's happening inside of me, our vision here, transforming lives, transforming everything. Like, Jesus invited us to follow him. Like, there's, there's a doing, right? And then this transformation starts to happen in that doing, but it's really just by following. And then, to do as their rabbi, to do as their teacher, to do as Jesus. What does that start to look like? What's that look like? And some of this is going to cross over to some of the things that have been said already. Again, there's a thousand. What's this look like? Say it again. Yeah, given of our time. More. Yeah, life and community. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, living into the law, the goodness that God has actually established for us, that we can flourish. What else? Loving our neighbor. Even our enemies, right? And not even just loving them, but actually blessing them. That's a small one. What else? Yeah. Yeah, going back to, like, where did we find Jesus? Who is he hanging out with? And then does our life start to actually look like that? People that are different than us, people that probably have nothing to offer us, people that are on the margins and the fringes of society. We could spend at least six more hours in just listing things. We really could, okay? But this is the model that Jesus has called them to. Now, the challenge in that is he's also saying there's things that you need to give up. And he named the two that are probably closest to, I can't imagine what's closer, to thinking about our family and our relationships and 
the tribe that we know, the, the way that we view the world, the politics that were handed to us, the religion that was handed to us, the cultural adaptation that was handed to us, the lifestyle, I mean, all of that. And he's saying, like, I know, because we got to remember here, he also tells us to, like, love and honor our mother and father. Like, we know this. He's not saying just do bad to them, but prioritize me. And I think even more right now, because right now it's easier to prioritize a lot over our family, culturally. It's very easy to do. It's probably nearly impossible to continue to prioritize over ourselves. That one, that one hurts a little bit differently, I know, to me. Now, what's interesting about this, if we think about the list that we just said, the things that, are, that were, were actually, what does it look like to be with Jesus? If we start to adopt these practices, that probably looks to separate us from the way in which we tie to our family, the way in which we tie to ourselves. I know for me, like if I sit for 20 minutes of silence, there's many other things I would rather be doing, like achieving or like having fun or something that's going to like fulfill me in the desire that I have in the moment. But silence is like a resistance to myself, to invite God in. And the more space I create that I'm resisting myself, hopefully in that I'm learning like patience. I'm learning to slow down and I'm learning that my whole identity isn't found in the things that I can do, but I can simply be. And, and, and I start to be shaped in a way that then if I don't feel like I have to prove myself or earn something, then I can like be present to people and care about their life and ask them questions and start to prioritize my time and my energy and my money and like give things away because it's not really about me. And I want us to think about that even in the backdrop of like big things like war and racism, exploitation of, of bodies, to pride and to arrogance. To, like this literally starts to change how the world operates and how we start to become and do the things that Jesus did. Then he goes on to say, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation with the others, or while the other is a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, again, you cannot be my disciple. So he starts to do this thing, and this is an area in which we call counting the costs. If you've been in and around church before and you hear this term, and essentially what he's doing is you pull out your little, is this a T83? I don't know, but like it was in a drawer and it's, I've had it forever and I'm sure many of you did or maybe still have, and I probably didn't use it very much. Um, but like he's giving this imagery that as I start to consider what it means to follow Jesus, if, if I start to consider what it means to pull away from all that I know within prioritizing my family and my tribe, as I start to consider that he's saying the things that make me up, that I want to live out authentically, I actually have to start reconsidering and prioritizing his ways above mine. And, and I start doing the math. I mean, he gives us an example. Someone's going to war and they have 10,000 men and, you know, he's thinking of how far they got to go. And he's like, well, they got, you know, and they have 20,000 men and wait, that, that can't be right. Why are, we can't go to war. Wait, time out. I got, I got to count again. Or I'm going to build a house. And it's like, okay, it's going to cost this much money. And, you know, but then you got to think about permits and you add this and well, then, I mean, everything takes at least a year longer right now. So then you got the time and the interest laid on that. Like, I can't, I can't even afford to build a house. Why am I actually about to do this? Like, this is dumb. I should, this is not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for anybody. Why in the world 
would I actually commit to something like this? There, there's, there's zero way I can pull this off. There's zero way that I and myself can be with Jesus, that I and myself can become like Jesus, that I and myself can do the things that Jesus did and the things that he's calling us to. I cannot do it. The math literally doesn't add up. And the thing is that the calculator is not broken. Like, like and I know that's always a thing, right? I'm thinking, like, well, I got to figure out and then I can do this and I can, you know, if I find this one, if I get this person to do this thing for me and then, and we just like keep going and spinning round and round and round and round and round. The calculator is not broken. Jesus is saying, no, it is going to cost you. It is going to cost you that much. And all those things that you're counting, the things that you want, the things you're hoping, the things all there, and then the things that you have and the things that I'm asking you to give away, when you put all of that together, if you cannot give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Which I'm like, what the heck am I even doing then? <laughs> like, what, what is this? Why? What's, what's it worth? Like, being on a speedboat on the lake right now is probably more enjoyable than, like, sitting here listening to me talk. Like, there, there's so many things you could actually be doing that are probably more enjoyable and that you can have your way a bit more and that you can get people to do things for you rather than, you know, like, there's ways of going about this that, like, Jesus is actually telling us to reconsider. Do you actually want this? Are you sure this large crowd of people that are walking with me right now, like, I don't think they know what I'm up to. They've seen some pretty cool stuff happen, and they all think I'm going to, like, overthrow this Roman government. Like, this, here's the things they think I'm going to do. I'm not going to do any of that. What I'm going to do is tell them to hate their family and to pull away at a great cost. I'm going to tell them to actually prioritize me over them in a world that only prioritizes self. And it's going to cost greatly. So let me, as, as we're going on this journey, like, I'm about to go somewhere pretty, pretty big, like, I don't, no one's really going to follow me there. Like, I, need to, I need to know. Like, if you want to be on this journey with me, we're going to pause right here and you just a little pulse check. Like, are you sure you want to go here with me? Because when you do this math, you can't. You can't do it. All the things that we dreamed of doing like Jesus, you can't. When we think about the big ticket items going on in our world all the way down to the small ticket, you can't. And for someone who thinks he can do everything, there's a very grim reality. See here, I'm going to wrap up with a little bit of this. If we think about Jesus in two forms, one, we might think of him as politician. Like this great crowd I can imagine is sitting there thinking, here is this this man who has come along who is doing these great things, man, if I just get him to do the things that I want him to do. Right, and a politician is very good at coming and building great crowds and saying things to please as many people as possible and, you know, get all the votes and, like, stay ambiguous enough but clear on one or two things. And, and if I get everyone to rally around these few things, I can get more and more and more and more people to follow me. And then, and then me as a voter... I start to look at the politicians and be like, well, like, if we just did this, and, well, that one's doing that, but I don't know about that, and, well, this one's going to satisfy the things that I think need to happen most, and, you know, so, I, okay, that, that one. And then a year in, and it's like, well, they, they didn't even do the things that he said he was going to do. Like, I voted for you because you were going to do this, and it's not even happening. Like, what do we have to do now to get this person out? How do, how do we go about, like, this isn't working for me anymore? 
And I, I wonder how viewing Jesus as politician plays into the way that we interact with being like Jesus or being with him, becoming like him and doing what he did. Do we just see Jesus as politician, as one who is here to give us the things that we desire in our hearts, one that's going to align perfectly with the family or tribe that we've grown in and the way that we view the world? Is it just to tag and say, yeah, I vote for this because I align with that, but it actually doesn't really require anything of me at the end of the day, does it? I don't know. I send in a ballot. I don't, I don't have to do anything. And I've heard it put in this comparison that what if Jesus was more of like mountain guide? Like, like if we kind of took some of those same thoughts and said, if Jesus showed up to me not as a politician but a mountain guide and I'm with a group of people and we're like, we're legitimately lost. Like I was with Wesley and he wants to go hike like 9,000 miles because he does for whatever reason and of course he wouldn't but somehow we got lost and the compass was broken and you know, it wasn't him, it was the compass. But like we're lost, right? And then all of a sudden like our group, like this guide pops up and is like, hey guys, here's the deal, you're lost, I know you don't want to admit it but like I know the way out. But here's the thing, if you want to go with me this way, like you got to leave your packs behind. Like, drop, drop the food, trust me. We're like, well, you can. And he's like, just, just good. And we're trying to be like, no, man, like, you're going. We came through this way. And he's just like, come on. Like, can we actually, like, recognize that as we're lost in the wilderness, that one has come to say, come this way. But it's going to be at a cost because he's going to do things differently than what got us lost in the first place to say. But don't we hang on to that? See, I think in all of this, Jesus has just said a moment ago, those of you who do not give everything, give up everything you have, cannot be my disciple. I wonder where the good news is in, in this, right? It was the thing about Luke, and Luke is breaking into the world, into the lives that we would probably least expect, including our own. This actually becomes good news for everyone because everyone has something to give. That everything is a different measurement, but he's saying give up everything so that you can be my disciple. And everyone has everything in their own way. And he finishes with this, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. We know in Scripture that Jesus calls us to, to be salt, to be light. And I wonder if we mix this up a lot, thinking like, man, I just need to remain, I just need to keep being salt. Like before I leave the house each day, like let's just throw some more salt on me so that I can, you know, so I can preserve things, so that I can, you know, bring peace and do it. And again, we have to question who is the salt here? What is the salt? Who, who does the salt actually come from? And just like he said earlier, in the, if, if you do the math, you can't do this. If you try to be the salt in your own way, you're also not going to do this. Do you have ears to hear that you cannot do it on your own? But that I have come so that through me, you can. So, so that, that through me, you can actually be with me in a way that you are going to become more like me. And then the beautiful thing that the world is so needing is that you will actually start to do more of what I've come to do. You will actually start to bring peace 
into the room that you walk in and, and is riddled with anxiety. That you will start to bring reconciliation to the groups that have their hands at each other's necks. That you will actually bring humility in a world that is just riddled with pride and arrogance. You actually will contribute to the world in the ways that it needs most. Do you recognize that you cannot do it on your own? Do you recognize that you and I need a Savior? And do we recognize that we are so worse off than we actually probably think we are? And that Jesus has come. And through the cross, he has said, be with me. Become like me. And begin to trust that you'll just more and more just naturally start to do the things that I do. And that sounds like salt that will start to preserve what Jesus is up to in his kingdom. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, the, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is good news. Because each and every one of us has everything. And Jesus is asking for it. And then he takes it and he reworks it. He says, here is what you have to offer. Let me do this with it. Here's the place that you find yourself right now and the ways I want you to, to kind of operate with this group of people. Let me help you with that. Here's the pain and the brokenness that the world has. Let me put you in this place so that my healing can actually come through you. And little by little, transforming lives, transforming everything. Can we be with Jesus? Can we trust that through the word of indirection that I don't muster up transformation, but it actually is a process that I allow and I receive to happen. And then just trust that, like, I'm then participating in transformation in everything around me. And I start to notice what Jesus is doing differently than probably the way I would do it. And that sounds like a world that starts to heal. And relationships that start to get mended. But he's not a politician, he is a rescuer. Can we more and more receive that? So I go back to that original question. Like, have you ever felt like you didn't measure up? Have you ever felt like you let something down? Have you ever felt like in your life over and over again you just fell short? Well, I hope you say yes because that's good news. To be able to say, God, I can't do this. When we think about Mother's Day, I can't handle the grief. And man, the celebrating like parenting, like this is the worst. Like this is so hard. I can't do this. We have Father's Day soon. And I, I can't be the father that I want and know I should be on my own. I know that I can't like save tower. Like I can't do this. We can't do this. Can we pause and give up and say, Jesus, I've come short over and over and over again. I've come short, save me. <laughs> Jesus, I've come short, redeem this. Jesus, if I've come short, use me. This is the place he wants us in. Humbly on our knees saying, I have come short.